everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. I'm Hannah, one of your co-hosts and an intern at the college. And I'm Sam, the other Cal intern. And I'm Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters. And you're listening to the Liberal Arts Endeavor. Each episode throughout the academic year will feature a different liberal arts story within the college. This week, we're talking to some amazing women within the college today. We've got the um, Department of English Chair, Kara Solano, and a professor of writing rhetoric in American cultures, Jackie Rhodes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Hello. Okay, so last episode, we talked to Dean Long about his initiatives and our priorities for the college, which included things like the School of Languages, the Center for Interdisciplinarity, the Citizen Scholars Program, the Excel Network, and then today, we're going to be going further in depth about the campus-wide initiative, Critical Diversity in a Digital Age. Exactly. And here with us today, we have two of the campus leaders and committee members of the CDDA. Um, Unfortunately, our third uh, guest could not make it, Malia Powell. She's the chair of Writing Rhetoric in American Culture. She is, and also an integral part of the CDDA. But uh, the two women with us can talk to us about it. Why don't you guys introduce yourself and kind of explain what why you're here? Hi, my name is Kara Solano, and I'm the chair in the Department of English. Uh, I've only recently joined uh, Michigan State, so I was very excited to land myself in the College of Arts and Letters and in the midst of uh, this, this great new project, the CDDA. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more after Jackie introduces herself. Uh, I'm also new to MSU, so I guess we're, we're in, in good company. Um, I came here in July, and I'm very happy to be here because this critical diversity in a digital age thing is near and dear my heart uh, with my own research into critical diversity. And luckily, I got to work with Malia and Chris uh, after the CDDA had al- already come into existence to work on the CEDAR initiative, which is sort of a research infrastructure underneath the CDDA. Well, it's really great to have you both not only on the podcast, but uh, at the college. It's, it's so in, uh, exciting to see the energy that you both bring to, to what you're doing. And I am really glad to have a chance to talk to you about critical diversity in a digital age as an initiative. We talked a little bit about what it was last, last time. And we, we had some resources. We wanted about, when I first came in, we were talking about culturally engaged digital humanities. Michigan State is a known leader in digital humanities generally. And I was kind of looking for a way to frame that strength of ours and to think about how it could be really an engine for recruiting and retaining innovative and diverse faculty doing really interesting work that will kind of raise the reputational uh, level of the of the college and the academic work we do. So I put out a call to the departments and said, OK, we're, we're going to do a cluster hire. And let's hear about some ideas about what that might look like in this general kind of area. So uh, we got some good proposals back. And, and Kara, we had one from, from that was sort of anchored in English. Yeah, yeah, we were really excited when we got the call because it's, it creates this environment in the college that's really driven from what the departments and the programs are interested in trying to put together. And it's also an opportunity in English because English is an umbrella and there's lots of things going on there for us to see what cuts across our various subfields. Uh, so in Wells C, I happened to be across the hall from uh, the director of African-American and African Studies, and he came over to my office one day and he said, we should have a conversation 
about this call. Uh, okay, let's talk. And he'd already reached out to a couple of other chairs. And so we all got together and sat around the conference room on the sixth floor of Wells C and just started talking. You know, what kinds of visions can we have? And I was writing furiously because all of this DH stuff is new to me. And I was getting very excited. Uh, so after we talked and it was kind of I self-appointed myself the secretary. <laughs> and so as I was putting it all together, putting it down on paper, I just started clicking around and looking at DH centers all over the country, all over the world, and seeing that really nobody is emphasizing cultural engagement, much less critical diversity. And so I saw a real opportunity uh, for us, for Michigan State, to uh, promote itself as a very singular place for this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And I think speaking for Malia, she was very excited to see it tie in so much with our department, which is writing rhetoric in American cultures, and our doctoral program in particular in cultural rhetorics. And so it it was a way to tie, tie in our belief in making space for diverse voices in DH scholarship and also faculty expertise in DH and multimodal composition and cultural rhetorics, including indigenous and African-American rhetorics and queer rhetorics and a lot of exciting stuff that's going on in the department. So it was just a, a great happenstance that we all came together. Yeah, that was one of those things where we received a number of of proposals, and as soon as I read the proposal from Writing Rhetoric in American Culture, and it in in the in the light of what you had come up with in English, and you had religious studies and African African American studies and history, history. all involved, mm -hmm. and I really wanted to affirm the collaborative spirit in which you uh, had written that. And also the language of critical diversity came out of that that proposal, but it was so tightly tied to what, mm -hmm. what Rack was proposing that I thought this was going to be a good opportunity to try and facilitate some more conversations. I was a little bit worried, though, because what critical diversity is, first of all, and then what critical diversity in a digital age might mean, second of all, is uh, something that we need to we, we, we needed to develop and we are continuing to, to develop. I don't know, Kara, if you had some thoughts about you know, where that term came from, the critical diversity in particular. Yeah, when I was thinking about the sort of um, potential interface between this question of cultural engagement, which we started thinking about as critical diversity and digital humanities or, or work in a digital age, I started to question the idea of what is the human in a digital context. You know, and in a way it is the idea of making spaces for more voices. Mm -hmm. And because we know that digital environments are frequently framed as highly democratic in, in that kind of way. But then I also thought um, the tools themselves are not neutral nor is access to these tools neutral. And so it, it opens up lots of ways for humanists of all kinds to start engaging with, you know, who has been able to represent, who's been represented in what ways, and who's been blocked from representation, um, which are questions that in, in literary studies and film studies um, we, we ask all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's framed nicely, I think, in terms of this sort of assertive belief in diversity and also a skepticism about yeah. what it is to be human. And so looking at diversity, not just in terms of human engagement, but maybe even non-human engagement in non-human environments. And I think there's fascinating philosophical questions that go along at the same time that we're trying to get it to hit on the ground and not just be philosophical, but praxis as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. I was I kind of crowdsourced um, comments for this podcast uh, from the, the search committee in the English department. And the grad student representative we have on the committee uh, who's doing a, a dissertation project that has DH components in it just sent me, you can imagine, this whole list of points that I should be talking about. And she introduced me to this notion of minimal computing. Mm-hmm. And I, I was completely fascinated by this movement, which is really, I mean, the way I understand it, and again, I say all of this is new to me, so I get highly excited very, very quickly. Um, the idea of minimal computing does take into account the effect on the environment of, of the ways that we use and dispose of technology so mm-hmm. quickly. So that is a, a, an important aspect, a material aspect, I think, right. of this endeavor as well. And, and looking at how humans and non-humans alike work in an ecology, a digital ecology right now, and taking the sort of ecological metaphor to think about how we interact and don't just interact but are codependent on each other. And mm-hmm. so I think this is what's really fascinating about looking in a digital age. Very often when you say humans are dependent on technology, which are dependent on humans, you start thinking about cyborgs and all this. And it's like, no, sometimes it's just a matter of um, what happens to the e-waste from our computers yeah. when we when we throw them away and things like that. So the ecological impact, not just in terms of environment, but the, the general ecology of systems working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that really interests me personally, but also I think is an exciting aspect of this initiative is the way in which the question of practices and embodiment Mm -hmm. inform the entire effort. I mean, when you think about the long tradition that humanities have in critique, we want to bring that, we want to bring that in as well as, as um, you said, Jackie, really a commitment to, to diversity in a robust sense. But these, it's the attention to the practices and the recognition that technology is not independent of those practices and is both has brings both affordances and limitations to our ways of interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's you know why now is a great question. I mean, it's a digital age, of course, but what is happening with the technology is that it's ubiquitous. It's moving fast, and there often isn't enough time to slow down and think about what are the consequences of this? How do we approach this in a humane and engaged sort of way? And so I think that critical diversity means looking at this ubiquitous viral technology and trying to figure out where do we fit and where can we engage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that has, um, that, that aspect of uh, how, how, are, how are we using technology to fr- to live intentional lives, mm-hmm. to live to live well, and so that that's how uh, that's how I s- see this as 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 central to the liberal arts endeavor, because what we try to help our students and ourselves learn how to do in the liberal arts is live a fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. And to to what degree can technology facilitate that, and and to what degree does that take us away, pull us away from that? Right. And to what degree do the humanities work technology toward that end? Right. I think that's one of the strengths and one of the things that excited me about coming to MSU and coming to the College of Arts and Letters was the the real deep recognition of the values of the liberal arts and the arts and the humanities in particular, and a and a really sophisticated understanding of technology and how and how it's impacting our lives and how it's um, shaping our relationships with each other. 
I'm interested, too. I, I know that the name of this podcast is the liberal arts endeavor. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to think about endeavor in its verb form, too, as to try. And I really see this initiative and the questions that it poses, questions that, you know, will never be closed by in a single answer as really trying, you know. And, and another verb that I know that Chris likes to use is enrich, right? And so this way that we think that a, a humanist, uh, humanist investigation into historically how have we used technologies, um, but then how, how now is technology and human existence or our lives every day, how are they interacting? You know, this notion is, what, you know, what kinds of lives are we enriching through the kinds of work that we'll do through this initiative? One of the things that we've emphasized in thinking strategically, I hope, about the cluster is that we are going to do it in two phases, that we're going to do a first phase that has three hires at the senior level, one in writing, rhetoric, and American culture, one in, in English, and one in history. And the, the, the idea there is that we would begin to build some leadership among the faculty in this area and that the new faculty members in, a, in coordination with those who are here already would be mentors for a second phase of faculty who we would bring in to uh, to pull out to pull out more strands of this initiative and to and to develop it further so i think it's important as we think about this uh, to to realize that we've been thinking about it in a very strategic way the another part of the strategy is to ensure that we have a, an infrastructure to support the research that is being done in this area. And that's why, you know, Jackie, you and I have been uh, in a Google Doc together <laughs> trying to flesh out the, the, the contours of this. And yeah. I've really appreciated your willingness to, um, to, to jump into a, a Google Doc and kind of think out loud with me because, first of all, I, I love doing that, and second of all, you know, it's not everybody who's willing to do that with their dean, so well, I appreciate it. It's been kind of fun because uh, one of the things that we threw into the Google Doc was the original CDDA consortium proposal, and so there's that sense of history going into it and then also trying to incorporate new voices, which I think is part of what we're doing in the first phase of the, the CEDAR initiative, which is trying to incorporate voices as they come into the university because as we try to build this infrastructure that supports research and encourages it and works as a catalyst toward the type of research we're looking for, um, we want to take into account the people who are coming in and not just build a top-down structure that says, okay, well, we're here and you have to fit into us. It's, it's more of a, okay, now you're here and you're bringing strengths in with you. How can you help us shape this thing for the future? And so it's turned into quite a, a collaborative sort of endeavor. So we had this consortium for critical diversity in a digital age research. That's mm -hmm. how we came up with CEDAR, because okay. there's too many C's and D's in that, <laughs> in that name. Luckily, it turned into a great acronym, so. Exactly, <laughs> and it, it, it names, for those of you who don't know MSU, it names the river, the Red Cedar River that runs through campus, and one of the themes that I've been emphasizing through the, uh, in my entire time here is, first of all, how beautiful the campus is, and uh, second of all, how the, uh, the humanities and the arts runs through the life of the university, like the Red Cedar River runs through the, the, the campus. So that, that, that makes me really happy to see that we're tying those two together. How do you, how have you been thinking about the, you know, the, the infrastructure? I mean, I think we've been thinking about this as a kind of catalyst. We've been thinking about it as a catalyst, and the infrastructure, it's, it's such an odd way to put it because yeah. I keep seeing it as relationships between people. And certainly the first phase of the CEDAR initiative is building relationships among 
incoming faculty, existing faculty, administrative structures, and community members, because I think one of the, the crucial components needs to be tying it to the larger community so that we can see the, uh, again, the ecology of the university within East Lansing, within the Lansing community, within Michigan, within the U.S., within the world. Right. Because um, it's important to see those relationships as an integral part of the initiative itself. So phase one is definitely building relationships and having conversations. But I think part of it, too, is trying to build from what people have already done with some of the existing research centers and initiatives on campus and trying to learn from that. So how do we provide support for people who uh, come to CEDAR and already have projects, but maybe they need collaborators? And ideally, we would have collaborators for them to work with. What if they already have collaborators, but they don't know quite what they want to do with what they have? Well, we're going to have more people working on more projects and a lot of, again, conversation and relationships to try to figure out how can we help each other help the initiative? Right. Yeah. The, we, we talked last time about the three imperatives that drive our priorities, so the imperative to recruit and retain the very best faculty, to enhance graduate education, and to enrich uh, undergraduate, the undergraduate experience. And, and this initiative really fits in with all three of them because it will allow us to be Right, because you, you can see if you, you work out relationships with some of the administrative structures and the departmental structures around the campus, you might be able to find funding for graduate assistants to work with the researchers who are coming in where undergraduates can work as project managers or as researchers too, and everybody is learning from everybody else. There's that mentoring that goes down from faculty to student, but there's also things that we learn from our students. There are things we learn from our peers. Um, but having the grad student involvement, having the undergrad student involvement, and then also having people come in at the senior level who have some strengths in directing initiatives and centers and doing this sort of research, I think is really going to be good. It sounds like a great opportunity to scale what's happening right now in English in our literary cognition lab, yeah. where we've got graduate students and undergrads working with uh, faculty on grant-driven projects. And these students are getting uh, an experiential learning opportunity that's mm -hmm. pretty much unmatched in our normal coursework, and then also finding ways to chart new intellectual paths forward. It's one. Speaking of graduate education and really enhancing graduate education, we get so many uh, PhD applications saying, you know, we really want to work in DH because they know that MSU is a place to, to do this. In, nationally in the field of English studies, though, there's still a question of, well, there's the dissertation and then there's DH projects, you know. What, so in a lot of ways, this provides us another opportunity to really be at the forefront of, of a, a national conversation about, well, this is what a, a DH dissertation right. can look like. And I think at the forefront of what graduate education looks like, because it's not just a matter in, in English's case or in RAC's case that the apprenticeship model is still the only one right. in play. Because when you start doing research with your graduate students and you give them that sort of agentive way of participating in the research, they're not just learning from you, they're actually staking their own, own claims mm -hmm. and learning collaboratively how to make a difference. And so it's, it's reconfiguring graduate education as we've known it in the humanities. Yeah, one of the things that excites me and has for a long time about the digital modes of scholarly communication, and that's something that I know, Jackie, you work a lot on, and that writing rhetoric in American culture is very much um, thinking about, is the opportunities it gives us to to perform the values for which we argue in our scholarship. And so I sort of call that performative consistency, the the, uh, the ability to publish your work or present it in a way that is consistent with what you're arguing, with, 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 with the content of your argument. And, and, I, and I think we're, we're trying to shape 
the Critical Diversity in the Digital Age Initiative, the CEDAR Initiative, in that same spirit of performative consistency, namely in the process of planning for it, in the process of organizing it, are we living out those deepest values of connectivity and inclusiveness and excellence that we that we value as a university and as a college. Absolutely, which makes this, the structure of the CEDAR initiative a little bit loose as it's going into phase one, but I think that's a good looseness because it's not you know tamping down structures and saying this is how it has to be because we don't know yet the end result of these searches that are going on. So we don't know the exact skill set, the exact set of strategies that are coming in to help us with the initiative. And once they're there on the ground, we'll be able to move forward, I think, really quickly. And I also see that this is where the outreach component becomes really important. Um, so that we, th as we consider, you know, enacting the kind of work digitally that we're talking about, the ideas that we're talking about. When it comes to critical diversity, we've got to think about communities and access and really engaging with people as co-producers mm -hmm. of knowledge rather than just a one-way street. Here is, here is what we've done. You know, come and partake. And I think that necessarily leads to another kind of critical diversity, which is input from the community, so that it's not necessarily research driven from the university saying, this is what a DH project looks like. It's the community saying, here's the way that we want to talk about something. What can you offer us? So it, it gives us different epistemologies. It gives us different ways of coming at knowledge that we might not think of in, in the university. And I think that's mm -hmm. going to be good. Yeah, and one of the things that excites me is, is about the opportunities that it, it affords us on the undergraduate level. And so I was going to ask you, Sam, and, and you, Hannah, about, about your own experience with, with technology and the questions of diversity during your, undergraduate, during your undergraduate time here. Yeah, it's definitely most prevalent in our Cal classes. So I've taken a few, you know, outside the college, and it's really just not, you know, we use technology, but not in any strategic way, but in, especially in professional writing classes um, and in Jackie Rose's class. We, <laughs> we, uh, we use technology to, to, you know, supplement what, you know, the theories that we're talking about and then to apply it to current things, you know, current actual happenings that um, we should be understanding anyway. So critically thinking about diverse topics but with the background in our education is really makes it, a better learning experience all oh, around. Yeah. Um, last semester in my class with Don Opal, who was a guest a couple episodes ago, um, our final project was to create a social media platform that was for the better good. It was for it was to promote um, positivity rather than, you know, what we've kind of found social media to be. And it was kind of it, the project was introduced after the election, and so we were talking about what kind of part social media played on that national level and she was like what would your ideal social media look like if you had twitter but there was only certain topics on it um how would that look like for you and i mean people created so many different things we didn't actually build it to work for anyone but like we built it in a way that you could see how it would work and it was just very cool to think about that in a way that it's more than just this technology. It affects people. It affects so much, especially as we learned um, in November. So it was that was my favorite thing about that class was learning about how social media kind of affects that and how social media is a major technology that is shaping the way we think about diversity and inclusion, um, even just at like a collegiate level. Mm -hmm. 
I think you're get, you're both getting at the contours of the meaning of, of critique and critical. Mm -hmm. So part of what we hope we bring is this, this ability to step outside of our interactions, to think about what are they doing to us, what can we do with them, right. and what possibilities might they open for more enriching, more mm -hmm. collegial, more... Um, a better, more just life. And mm -hmm. as I've been learning about this, I'm a social media native. I mean, I've been on social media since MySpace. Um, and it's always been a huge part of my <laughs> life. Um, and I've become much more concerned about what I'm posting. Is this enriching? Is this, is Dean Long going to scroll through what <laughs> my Twitter account and see this? And sometimes I still tweet, you know, mm -hmm. whatever comes to mind. But I think harder and I think about who is going to see this, what is it going to affect? Is it going to change anything? And I think a lot more people need to kind of think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that gets back to those questions of practices and habits. And one of the reasons why I, I mean, I've, I've always been very interested in social media and, and involved with it. But part of what I'm hoping to do is modeling what I think of as enriching contributions and thinking about, well, how, how does this pull the conversation forward? How does this add something that somebody might not have had otherwise, mm -hmm. rather than just have a kind of uh, reactionary, kind of cathartic feeling like I just got to get right. this off my chest, although sometimes that's important too. <laughs> I think it's, it's interesting to get things off your chest, but then also to think about in another bodily metaphor, what shape of footprint are you leaving right. there? What do your footprints look like as you're stepping through this technology? I'm reminded of, I think I told you about this book by Rosie Bray Dottie, The Post-Human. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's a part in there where she says that the task of critical theory now is to create an adequate representation of the self in the socio-political context. And I think that trying to critically engage yourself with your technologies and pay attention to the connections among past, present, and future in yourself, as well as your past, present, and future connections across technologies, gives you this way of standing uh, sort of transgredient to the social, where you're participating fully in it in a holistic sort of way, and you're committed and engaged and um, part of the world. Exactly. And, I, I'm, and that's what excites me about this, and, and, and the ways in which... You know, that requires a real nuanced understanding of the variety of limitations and affordances yeah. of a given technology, even within one technology. I mean, thinking about Twitter it depends on how you have it set up and mm -hmm. who you're following, who's following you, and how what your privacy settings are. Same with Facebook and Snapchat mm -hmm. and all these things. So those are the things we need, as particularly, I mean, for all of us, but I think it's one of the things we need to help our undergraduates navigate yeah. in particular is, you know, how do we... How do we uh, how do we embody the values that we care about and live mm -hmm. good, healthy, enriching uh, lives? I'm curious. I mean, what, what you were just saying about the self and the social and, and your point that you're a digital native with MySpace. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if you're a self who can recognize your identity in some form through the digital, whether mm. it's through the platforms you engage in or the profiles you create, how will you connect? And I don't know the answer to this. I mean, this is a genuine question. How will you connect with people who don't 
see themselves in that way vis-a-vis -vis technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, if part of critical diversity is coming into contact with people who are different, and by different, I want to be really clear that we mean people who've been racially othered, who've been othered because of their ethnicity, their sexual um, orientations, their religions, all of those kinds of things, how will we come to even recognize, much less come to understand each other, mm -hmm. if our sense of self is, is so thoroughly informed by whether we recognize, you know, our profile in a digital platform. I think it's so important that you, as someone who is digitally native, you are under, uh, that also gives you the opportunity to be connected to different people and understanding different things and open up yourself isn't just yourself. You, that is being knowledgeable of others and being knowledgeable of all the different things going on, even if it doesn't necessarily mirror your personal profiles, your the way that you see technology, because I was just thinking about it. Someone that uses Twitter with a public profile does not use Twitter the same way as you do if you have a private profile. It's like two completely different social media platforms if you have one or the other. And so I think it's really important to just kind of know that there's limitations and know that you have to open your mind and be available to other things. And when you see something, you can't automatically put it off as this isn't me, I don't necessarily align with this, but kind of think, okay, but this is out there and this is happening and I should be aware of it. And I think that, that what's important too is to recognize those points of privilege that we have, mm -hmm. being uh, having that sort of access to technology because some of the economic othering that goes on yeah. in terms of just bare access to the technologies means that those of us who are sitting here, I'm looking at all the technology in the podcast right now who have access to this sort of thing and feel comfortable using it that leads to a different sort of conversation from one you would have with people who do not feel comfortable and who do, don't have access to the technology. And I think that's what makes it crucial to make contact with the larger community mm -hmm. and to find out what do you want to talk about in terms of technology? What can we offer um, you in particular in this conversation? And I think that that's going to lead us to conversations we can't even imagine right now yeah. because we're sitting here at our points of privilege going, wow, it would be really cool to do this thing with the computers mm -hmm. <laughs> where, you know, somebody else is saying, you know, we still don't have clean water. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And I'm curious, too, you point out, you know, public and private personas, a public account and a private account. How does how how can we go about building trust with communities if there is that possibility of, no, this is the public face. Who right. knows what's going on in their right. private account? Mm -hmm. Right, and you never know. And you never know what sort of weird and uncomfortable and hateful private personas people have, even if they have something on that they publish online that is not that way. That's You never know. Those are, like, unanswerable questions, hmm. I feel like. Which is why it's so important for humanists to be involved with yeah, that, yeah, because yeah, yeah. humanists understand or at least have a sense of how to respond to those kinds of open, open-ended questions. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of a conversation that happened in my class earlier today, and my students were talking about expediency and talking about, they had just read an article that talked about how some communication or some papers are expedient or they have an ethic of expediency, but they actually don't have an ethic. And I think this is where we get into the question of technology because very often we think of technology as that which is more efficient or that makes things more expedient. And we're not necessarily thinking about what's the ethic that's underneath that technology. And I think this is what humanities brings to it is that sense of 
even if you say this is not political, this is not an ethic, this is just a neutral thing, you're making a political and a, mm -hmm. a, a statement there. And so I think having that critical understanding of what it means to make those statements is a crucial yeah. part of what humanities has to offer. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I, I think of the, the, the rich meaning of, of ethics in the sense of the Greek sense of ethos, which means character. So what's the, what's the character that you're, that you're embodying in these interactions and in, in your use of technology? Yeah, I. I think this is. A, <laughs> I think that was a good, uh, good, good place to wrap up. Um, well, thank you so much, Kara and Jackie, for being here and talking to us about all of these awesome things happening. <laughs> this was great. Yeah. Thanks thank for the invitation. Um, so we want to thank our technical producer Daniel Trigo for being amazing, our marketing director for being a wonderful, and of course the a wonderful producer and of course the College of Arts and Letters for giving us so so much you can check out all the college's podcasts at cal.msu.edu slash about slash podcast and finally the ideas and opinions expressed on this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters any of our sponsors or any official entities of Michigan State University be sure to tune in in two weeks for an all-new episode about more news and exciting initiatives happening within the college around the arts and humanities Thank you for listening. Go green. Go, Go white. white.